Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. It's great to be with you. It's especially good this morning um, as we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Now, over the last, uh, I guess just week, last week we started a new series uh, that we're calling New Wine Worship. And the goal is to receive from Christ a fresh outpouring of His Spirit, and for our church to be a wineskin made for containing it. Does that seem like a good vision? So last week what we looked at is the first of three analogies which Jesus gives us to help us understand what that new wine is and how that works with the new wineskin. Now the first analogy we looked at was of a wedding feast. The main point that Jesus is communicating is that the way of Jesus is fundamentally about a God who is here. This makes the whole of the Christian life more of a wedding than a funeral and more of a feast than a fast. Okay, that That's the fundamental nature of the way of Jesus and the life of the church together. And that it's profoundly intimate as a bride to her groom. This is how Jesus describes himself. That he is like the groom coming to us, the bride. So our first major takeaway is that new wine is for a celebration. Amen? And Jesus' presence and saving union with us is the reason for that celebration. Amen? So the worship culture then we want in our church is one where we collectively devote ourselves to that end. Where Sunday is a wholehearted reunion with our God and Savior. That that's what the gathering is for. We reunite to Christ, to the presence of God, and in doing so we reunite to one another. So then, those who serve the congregation in that pursuit, in the song worship or the service leading or even our preaching, must personally know how to enjoy that for themselves. That their invitations for the congregation to do that would be genuine. That their guidance and leadership that they give us would be effective. Right? Seems kind of like a no-brainer. Right? Those, are, those are the primary things that we're looking for. And so then the profile of a leader or a musician is one who knows thirst and hunger, the reality of this human life, but has found the feast and can lead others to it. Right? To meet us where we're at, to go, I know what it's like to be thirsty, I know what it's like to be hungry, but let me show you where to eat and drink to your full. So, that was last week. Is that good? Isn't that fun? So, our second analogy today has to do with a garment patch. Verse 16, this is how Jesus says it. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Interesting analogy. 
I know for me, when I put all my unshrunk patches on my torn garments, this is a common problem for me. Right? <laughs> not, not a big modern issue, but I think we get the idea of the picture here, right? That as the patch shrinks, moves, it actually tears the garment it's supposed to be helping. Now, here's what this analogy is going to do. It's going to answer a deeper question which John's disciples either aren't yet aware of or aren't confident enough to say out loud. Will Jesus continue to follow the law of Moses and Jewish tradition? That's the question. Is up until this point, they're seeing Jesus work within the system, work within Jewish tradition, work within the Mosaic law, and now it seems like Jesus is going beyond it and that's making people uncomfortable. And the people it's making most uncomfortable are the people most devout. You'd say the most mature, the healthiest. Because now they're going, wait, can I follow you here? It's actually a very disconcerting moment. Now here's what we know about Jesus. Jesus followed the law. Jesus followed the Mosaic law perfectly. And up until this point, no one in Jesus' life would have ever questioned Jesus' observance of the Mosaic Law. Nobody would have asked that. Instead, what we see is that he understood it better than anybody. Even at the age of 12, he's exceeding the rabbis, the teachers, and the leaders of that time. So Jesus lives it out in a deep way, he follows it more faithfully than anyone else and fulfills it to perfection. That's Jesus' reputation up until this point. That he did so internally, emotionally, mentally, physically, seasonally, relationally, and sacrificial. Not only did he follow the law, though, Jesus exceeds it. And this is where people actually get uncomfortable. Why? Why do you get uncomfortable? Why do they get uncomfortable seeing Jesus exceed the law? Here's what we see. Is that not only does he follow it, he fulfills it to the fullest degree which it required, and he's the only one to ever do so, but his righteousness seems to almost burst past it. Beyond it. We get a little foreshadowing in that of the wineskin, don't we? So here's what Jesus does. He exceeds it. And we hear it probably most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, which we covered last year as a church. Right? We see Moses' law say, love your neighbor. And then we see Jesus come in and say, and love your enemy. You see how it goes beyond? We see Moses' law say, do not commit adultery. And then Jesus comes and says, don't even think lustfully. The internal things. The law says, do not murder. What does Jesus say? Do not be angry. See how he's expanding it? The law says, give to the poor. Leave the edges of your field unharvested so the poor can come take them. Jesus says, give generously and in secret where no one can see it. The law says, don't lie. Jesus says, 
be fully honest about your yes and your no. Authentically agree to things. The law says an eye for an eye in terms of fairness and judgment. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Generosity. The law says, do not covet other people's things. And Jesus comes in and says, don't even be anxious about your life. Jesus is blowing it up. Exceeding it far beyond and taking it much deeper than the law is initially saying. This is why this language comes into play of the old garment. Is this is an old way of living, but it's worn out. It's insufficient for the future. And this is how Jesus is referring to the Mosaic law. Is that this is a garment that was good at one time. It's not that it holds no beauty and no value. It's just that it's completed its purpose. That's very common for churches to say, this is what we've always done or what we used to do. Because at one time, it was really helpful and really good, and really vibrant, right? These same types of proclivities come up in every church to go, shouldn't we just fulfill the old expectations? Can we just play it safe so we know we're right? (laughs) But Jesus is describing this garment, which at one time was absolutely necessary and exactly what was needed and exciting to wear, but has now been used up to the point that there's holes and tears in it and it's actually failing its initial purpose. Right? You think you buy clothing, and you wear it enough, and then it wears out. I had a really hard time with this in my young adult years. So you buy pants, and I used to skateboard a lot, and then you'd wear them right out. And they'd always wear out in the most uncomfortable place. My pants seemed to rip in a certain region, of which you don't need to look at. But because they were comfortable and because they were my favorite pants, I had a hard time letting go of them. And then all of a sudden I'd find myself in this setting where I'm sitting. That's enough. That's all you need to know. And it was no longer fulfilling its purpose. This is what's being described here. Is that this is a garment that you once wore, was once helpful, which once covered you, but now is contributing to your vulnerability and your exposure. What Jesus is alluding to, and the apostles end up explaining to us in the New Testament, is that the Old Covenant suffered from very specific shortcomings, limitations, and inabilities. It's helpful for us as a church to understand clearly why don't we practice all the Jewish traditions? Why don't we keep all of the different ordinances of the Old Covenant? So here's my quick explanation here. The Old Covenant is made up of three main elements. Okay? The first is the Ten Commandments. The second is the sacrificial system. And the third is the vision for holiness. So an all-inclusive vision for your life. What you eat, what you wear, everything. It covered everything. How you clean your body, how you have relationships with others, everything. Sexuality covered all of it. 
And here's the three things that it accomplished. Now, the Ten Commandments, what it does in human history is give clarity on the fact that there is a morality. There is good and there is evil in the world. There is righteousness. And there's a way for humanity to live that is good. And this is what the Ten Commandments essentially describe. It's individual, but it has societal impact. The second thing that we have is the sacrificial system. And this is a solution for the sin problem. Sin separates humanity from God. Sin separates humanity from each other. Sin separates humanity from the creation. And we need a solution to the problem. So the sacrificial system comes into play to say humanity has this innate natural need for confession, for repentance, for comfort and assurance, and to, and to sacrifice, to give atonement for the failures, for the sin, for the screw-up. And then this third piece, this vision for holiness, where God says, this is what you should eat, this is what you should wear, and very specific things. Don't eat shrimp. Dang it. Don't mix fabrics together. Ah, but they look good. Or it seems like this is what you do on your menstrual cycle. And this is how, and on and on and on. It's all these details that cover every aspect of the human life. And what they're meaning to communicate is you as God's people are meant to be set apart from the rest of the world. You're meant to be mine, which means you embrace the fact that you're different. You don't live like every other culture. You live like my people. That's the main thing it's communicating. So here's these three things. This idea of clarity on righteousness, a sacrificial system to solve the problem of sin, and this vision of holiness to live set apart for God that's holistic and all-encompassing. But here's where the failures come into play of that system the tears in the garment, we can say, so to speak. The first is this. The law did not have the power to make you righteous. Knowing what was good didn't result in more goodness, but actually more condemnation. What the law revealed is even when we know what the standards and expectations are, we can't keep them. Isn't that disappointing? And we often think, if I just knew what was expected of me, then I could do it. Is that true? Is it? No, we actually fail to do the thing, even the things that we're intending to do. We say we believe in the, the things we say we want. Even if we accept God's law and the Ten Commandments and say, this is the way I want to live, we will soon discover the harder we try, the more we fail. So this is the shortcoming of the law. God can say, I can show you what's good, tell you what's right. The bad news is you're going to find out you can't do it. Which brings us to the second point of the sacrificial system. You need a solution for sin. But the sacrificial system of the old covenant didn't have the power to cure sin and bridge the gap for everyone to come into and live in God's presence. The sacrificial system required more sacrifice every single time we sinned. 
more and more blood? What's going to cover this unrighteousness? What's going to make this right? And this is where we come to the realization that no amount of animal blood and sacrifice is going to fix this problem. And even in that old covenant system, did everybody then get to enter into God's presence? No. One man, once a year. And then if you look at the way it's laid out, there's all of these roadblocks further and further away. Only the high priest can go into God's presence once a year to offer oblations and sacrifices for the sins of the people. But then from there, then it's only the priesthood can go into this layer, and then it's only the men can go into this layer, and only the women can go into this, and the Gentiles, they're way out there. Heads up, you're a Gentile. Is that religious system bringing people into God's presence? No, it's failing miserably. And the vision for holiness, here's what it resulted in. More human effort focused on on all the rules rather than being focused on God. Because when it's, what do you eat and what do you wear and how do you do it and what's the time and all that, that's a lot of effort, isn't it? You've got to be on the ball and you've got to be focused and the amount of times that people are like, oh man, I made myself unclean again. <laughs> ah, I touched the wrong thing. Ah, I was in the wrong place. It's exhausting. But when we look at that kind of history of religion in the world, religion is this way that humanity is saying we recognize we're separated from something beyond. We're separated from the divine. We're separated from the spiritual. There's something wrong in the world that we live in. How do we get to God? We do religion. We put in these systems and we make clear the efforts of what we're going to do and we do sacrifices and the whole goal of religion is for us to get to God. The old covenant in a way is kind of like God saying, fine, you want to get to me through religion? This is what it should look like. It's a shadow, an earthly representation of what's going on in heaven, but it doesn't achieve the goal. Here's where the old covenant is successful, though. Here's where I think God was in the gaps and the tears. Because the failures of the law end up being a great success for revealing the need for a new and better garment. The first thing is, is it revealed Israel's inability to be good apart from God. It just made that so abundantly clear. And the harder they tried, the more they sinned, actually. That Israel needed a better sacrifice to cure sin, and needed a better priest who could take them all into God's presence. That Israel because of their unfaithfulness, actually reveals God's steadfast faithfulness. Every time Israel fails, God says, I'm not giving up. And even when he has every right to do so, when it's at the very end, we we don't have time to go through all the Old Testament stories, 
But even like the line of David fails, and, and the system fails, and it all fails, and Israel falls away from God, and God says, I said, if you break this covenant, I'll forget you. And then he goes, but this little promise. I'll send a Savior. All of this leads to this vision that actually makes us long for the end of religion. Religion doesn't save. Religion doesn't take us to God. And that's the misconception of John's disciples. They're hoping that Jesus will come in and fill in the shortcomings to prop up the Old Covenant. They're hoping Jesus will make that thing great again. That Jesus would serve it and upkeep the worn-out system. But Jesus didn't come to save religion. Jesus came to end all religion. This is the unique view of the Gospel. That if you try to use Jesus to save religion... Guess what Jesus will do? He'll rip it apart just by being himself. And you'll see it. You find churches where they're just like, we just, we preach Jesus, we talk about Jesus, but really the whole system is just religion. Same old, same old, but in the name of Jesus. Does it work? Does it? No. From the inside, sin's pulling it all apart. And in the cracks, Jesus is saying, I can save this. I can make this better. I'm the real thing. Because here's the truth, the fundamental truth, is that Jesus brings a new, better law and sufficient sacrifice. Religion tells you what sin is. Jesus is the salvation of it. Religion condemns you for your sins. Jesus takes your condemnation for you. Religion says that you owe a debt that needs to be repaid with religious fervor. And Jesus comes and pays your debts and sets you free with love. Are you alive? Is this good news yet? Religion seeks to motivate you through shame and guilt and social pressure. Jesus motivates you through mercy, grace, dignity, and intimacy. Religion tells you to achieve your righteousness, to earn your way to God, and Jesus says God achieves it for you, in you, and through you as a gift. The writer of Hebrews 8 describes Jesus' ministry like this, a much more excellent covenant with much better promises. That's how the New Testament scriptures talk about it. A much better, a much more excellent with much better promises. Jesus is the real thing. And when the New Testament talks about like the old covenant is just a shadow of what is to come in Jesus, we have to embrace this at a very deep level. The shadow is not equal to the real person. Nor is it made up of the same substance. Likewise, the law has the shape of righteousness, but it's not the substance 
of righteousness. Jesus is the detailed and living substance of righteousness, and the law is merely His silhouette. That's the truth of the Gospel. Everything about the Old Covenant points to righteousness in flesh in Jesus Christ. Salvation in reality through sacrifice. Resurrection, new life is possible through the work of God. That's all of the good news of the Scriptures. So there's a connection here between the law and between Pentecost. When you look at the Exodus story, we have God redeeming the people of Israel from Egypt, right? All the plagues. Pharaoh finally relents. They have the Passover meal before that where the lamb is slain and the blood is spread over the doorways, right? That whole story. And then their redemption through the Dead Sea. And in that process, all of their enemies are drowned, right? So their full redemption story happens. And then do you know what happens 50 days after their release from Egypt? 50 days later is Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where the people of God receive the Mosaic Law, the things that we just talked about. Now, the other side of it is Jesus going through all the redemption process for Himself. He is the Lamb who was slain. He is crucified, dead, and buried. He is resurrected from the grave, right? Do you know what happens 50 days after the resurrection? Pentecost. So, the shadow of the old the redemption story leading to God's righteousness being revealed, the fulfillment of that in Jesus is His life, His death, His resurrection and His ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Listen to how it's talked about in Hebrews 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what happens at Pentecost. As God says the new covenant will be where I do the work of salvation, and I do the internal work necessary to actually make a changed life possible. To actually make salvation possible. To actually make new life available. It's not centered on the problem of sin. It's centered on the solution of sin and the life that comes out of it. So here's this beautiful revelation where God says at Pentecost, it's time. All that Jesus accomplished for you and made possible, the Spirit comes into you and makes it actual. It's not a theory. It's reality. Your old way of thinking is rewritten in the presence of the Spirit. 
your old natural leanings towards sinfulness and selfishness and self-provision and desperation will be rewritten with love and trust and safety in the presence of God. That's the fundamentals of the Gospel, isn't it? Where you fear death, I will give you resurrection. Where you don't know what the future holds and wars and economic instability and the world around you seems crazy, you'll know you're of my city and my kingdom and my future is bright. That's the truth of the Gospel. Yes? And the Spirit is the very presence of God once unattainable, once far off, once away from you and separated from you by sin, is now in you, speaking comfort to you and speaking life to you because of the works of Jesus. Isn't that radical? This is a radical belief. This good news, this gospel, ends the need for religious questing after God. Because God has come down. Because God has saved humanity. Because God is available. Because God is making a new people and a new way and a new earth and a new future. Religion is just unnecessary. It's an old garment which should be thrown off for the new. So what we see at Pentecost is this new this first church is a group of people getting together, waiting for God to fulfill His promise. Jesus said to wait for Him. We're going to wait. Praying prayers together that Jesus taught them. And when we did the reading earlier in our service. The gathering of people aren't doing anything fantastic. Just waiting in a, in a room. Waiting in an upper room. Does that sound like religious fervor? A religious accomplishment? It's just folk going, we don't really know what to do, so let's go here and be together and we'll wait and see what happens. And just like every other aspect of the Gospel, it's God's sovereign work. Because while they sit there, Jesus, the great high priest, has ascended into heaven into the heavenly temple and is presenting before His Father His once and for all sacrifice for the sins of humanity. He takes with Him a train of conquered demonic spirits to show off His victory. Presents to the Father on the altar His blood shed for humanity. And what's God's response to the finished work of Jesus? God, in partnership with the Son, pours out the presence of God from the Holy of Holies onto and into His people. The veil is torn, but now it's His presence unleashed upon His people. The new temple is the humble hearts of these simple folk trusting in the work of Jesus. And all of God's presence pours into them speaking the good news of Christ to their specific story, to their specific sins, to their specific needs, to their specific hopes of the future. The Gospel works for them. 
And out of them flows something wonderful. So they're filled with the Spirit. Tongues of fire. So flaming fire rests over their heads as an outward expression of this inward mystery. And they're filled with the Spirit to the point where they begin to prophesy in other languages. And this is how John, in the book of Revelation, when he talks about his interactions with the angels, this is how they describe what prophecy is. Prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So when you think, well, what are they prophesying? What are they saying? They are testifying to the salvation of Jesus from their own hearts. It's not some wild thing. It's the most natural thing when the presence of salvation comes and fills you. Is you, you express your gratitude. This is my testimony of the saving power of Jesus. So here is the new wine of worship in Christ church so far. I think it's a celebratory feast for the presence of Jesus. That God has come to earth to save sinners like you and me. That it's not religious. It's not about humanity getting to God through their own works. It is about the saving power of His relationship. It's deeply intimate. I've actually had a problem with that whole, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It kind of got cheesy. But then this text brought me back around to go, no, I got to accept that. It's just true. It's about your union with Jesus. And the best way to describe it is relationally, intimately. But the new wine worship is also in the power of the Holy Spirit. That the destination of this, if we believe in Christ, hold to Christ, what it results in is Christ bringing the presence of God to us. That's the logical outcome of the work of Jesus. It's not some charismatic crazy thing. It's just the logical outcome of the work of Jesus is that He's saving humanity to bring them to God. And the Holy Spirit is here. And the Holy Spirit isn't doing weird, wonky things. The Holy Spirit is doing the most central things. You hear me? Too many times people are saying the Holy Spirit's doing this, and it's like, whoa, that's so out of left field. And so far from like the fundamentals of what Jesus has accomplished. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to do the work of Jesus in you for your salvation and to fill you to overflowing with that reality. I know this all seems obvious. But this is everything. What else is there if there's this? Like the idea that somehow the music or the song choices are, are going to get us to God? 
Or that somehow that's what we're putting our confidence in? And if it's not good, I guess we're not getting there. Like, how does that make any sense? Considering this is what's at the heart of the way of Jesus. It's, it's not just religious. It's, even, it's further away to make it about any of that stuff. I believe a truly mature, healthy congregation of followers of Jesus worship because of Jesus in spite of all the other practicality. That uh, song that we sang tonight or this morning, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, was written in a church where they were all excited because they finally afforded the new sound system that they've been saving for for years. And on the first Sunday they were supposed to get it, their lead pastor took it away and said, you're not allowed to use it. Because it doesn't matter. You think the beauty of this room matters? You think the acoustics of this room matter? As part of a church where the worship leader every Sunday would go, drum solo! And, make the, and the drummer would go, ugh. Because somehow in their minds, that was the formula. If we do a wild drum solo, then the presence of God comes. It's not just religious, it's awkward. But all this to say, like, I I mean it, is to go, what is it? What is the purpose of this? What do we come here for? To be soothed and calmed by nice-sounding ditties? Or to come into the presence of God through the person and work of Jesus. Right? Is there any room for worship wars in that reality? None. It makes no sense if this is true. I'm not saying that because we have worship wars. We don't. I mean that. We work through a lot of that stuff. But if we're going to set the culture of our worship, it has to be set on the main things. And this is the fundamental reality. Is that Christ is saying this is a wedding feast where he's come for his bride. And that this is a new covenant, a new way of doing things. And all of it is about what God has done for us. So worship is primarily responsive to God's gospel. Understand that? Worship is not the ladder we climb to try and get to God. Worship is not the way we try to feel good emotions and goosebumps. Worship is none of those. The music does not matter. The person and work of Jesus does the work. Yes? We agree to that? And so the music serves that purpose. The songs are meant to be clear about the person and work of Jesus and give opportunity for us to respond. We'll talk in weeks to come on how to do that well. But this is more important than that. Do we agree to that? Do we buy into that vision together? So where's our hope? Jesus. Where's our confidence? The work of Jesus. Where does our anticipation and expectation come from? Jesus. Because the true glories of the gospel are about the gift of his presence and the praise of his people. Amen.
So let's turn our hearts to his table.